1: The Epstein list drops, and both sides of the political aisle go nuts. Speaking of nuts, Nikki Haley links October 7th to Ukraine because, of course, also college football is true and beautiful, and Michigan is ruining it. I'm Andrew Coppins. This is a myth busting Thursday, and it's time for critical thinking. That's right, it is a myth-busting Thursday here on the program. We're trying something new on a Thursday where I take a look at different uh, things that the right, that the left, that the center, uh, the world of sports, the world of politics, all over the place are talking about and busting the myth that is being perpetuated. So, up first today on this myth-busting Thursday, we're going to talk about... What everybody was waiting for four years at this point, and that was the Jeffrey Epstein list of black book clientele, whatever you want to call it. But before we get there, just a gentle reminder, if you are new to the program, you can follow me on X at The Cop and Show. You can also follow me on Facebook at The Cop and Show. Now, beyond all of that, the simplest things that you can do to help grow the show Is Well, number one, the word of mouth, but number two, simply downloading, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast, or making sure you're subscribed to the Rumble channel, rumble.com backslash critical thinking. That's rumble.com backslash critical thinking. And of course, on X, where we put this show every single day. So thank you to each and every single one of you that do tune in on X on Rumble or via your favorite podcasting platform. With that having been said. This is a myth-busting Thursday. So up first, the Jeffrey Epstein list dropped yesterday, right? So what? Everybody is going nuts. The right, Bill Clinton's on this list because, well, Slick Willie is Slick Willie. And then the left, Donald Trump is on this list. Oh, my gosh. Disqualify him. Disqualify him. Okay, folks. Here's the reality. I just have a very simple question. Was there anything that you didn't already know or a name that you didn't already know to have existed from this list? More importantly, any big bombshell, massive names? I'm still waiting. Because we all knew Slick Willie, a.k.a. Bill Clinton, was on this list. Didn't we already know it? Wasn't it already hearsay evidence and while this is just confirmation of it? Didn't we already know that Slick Willie himself is an absolute predatory monster when it comes to women? Yes, we literally have a 40-year history of that being a thing. But is anything going to change? No. Just just no? So what? Now, for the left going after Trump, this is a nothing burger. Because what is included and why he is on this list is actually not really good news for Jeffrey Epstein In so much as, well, Donald Trump didn't want anything to do with him. Donald Trump barred him from Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump um, saw right through most of Epstein's gross behavior and actually really didn't want much to do with him. There's literally no linkage of Donald Trump being involved in anything other than business dealings. And unfortunately, there's a lot of shady people doing a lot of business with unshady people, and other shady people. And you can argue that doing business in New York means you're going to get involved with shady people. You can make that argument. Just saying. But the main point here, as we got this holy crap bombshell Epstein list dropped yesterday, is this. Wasn't this list supposed to expose the deep state, the corrupt elite, the derelicts of the elite of the society for once and for all times sake. Yet not not so much. Turns out this list is pretty much an absolute nothing burger. Turns out their names we already knew existed and to have been predatory Turns out the vast majority of these people are wholly unknown to wide swaths of the American public. And it does turn out that Jeffrey Epstein was a sexual predator, an international sexual predator, and and maybe the lengths to which that international linkage had been exposed was maybe the story here. Maybe that's the actual story. I'm just not convinced that we have the actual story in so much as the way we thought we would after the release of this list. Now, there are some names that are redacted for having been underage at the time or still potentially um, exposed to issues, Okay, but they're largely the victims in this case. the vast conspiracy theories of what Jeffrey Epstein was up to and whom was involved in the Lolita express and this, that and everything in between turns out the vast majority of the names that were known to be involved from the sexual predation side of things were already known that there, there was not some big revelation of some big deep state scenario here. Now, That doesn't mean that there weren't powerful people who would have done a lot of really shady crap to have kept their names off of that list in the hopes that maybe Jeffrey Epstein didn't talk or this, that, or anything else in between. That doesn't preclude us from understanding that Jeffrey Epstein had a really weird relationship with the law enforcement side of America right? when it comes to how he got the deal down in Florida back in the 2000s, none of it is really changing. The only thing I believe that has changed for me by the drop of this list is that this was a whole lot of hype for, well, less delivery than the original prequel to Star Wars uh, when we got episode one. It felt like that kind of hype. It, it, it's okay. I mean, it's got a list of the names and whatever, whatever, whatever. But that the, there was no big revelation of names that we didn't already know. There was no big drop, and and I, I can't live without knowing everything in on this list. Much like I loved the fact that we were getting a new Star Wars movie for the first time in. Well, I'm trying to think about this. Since I was able to remember Star Wars coming out. I was probably too young to have even seen. In the theater. The. Episode. Six. But. All of that notwithstanding. The point of the matter is that. It was. Good to watch Star Wars. It was good to see it. Just like it was good to see the list as confirmation of what we already knew. But beyond that. There's nothing there. So. We're going to move forward because that's what we need to do here on the program. And moving forward means making sure that you know to take into your wonderful coffee mug our fine friends over at CoffeeBrandCoffee.com. It is a very simple way for you to get something in return for support of this show where you go to a brand, a company that cares about its product, not its politics or your politics. That's our friends over at coffeebrandcoffee.com. Enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout for 10% off of your purchase today. Again, go to coffeebrandcoffee.com where you can get coffee, tea, you can get um, hot cocoa, you can get all sorts of things. And I believe there are still some discounts available over there beyond the 10%. So you're going to want to check that out. Go to coffeebrandcoffee.com, enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout to let them know that we, that me, myself, and I have sent you. Okay. So moving forward from that, we have got to talk about Nikki Haley. Because she has had two things, not one, but two things, that we need to bust the myth on. Number one is that the Hamas attack on October 7th was really all about um, Vladimir Putin, okay? That's what this was all about. You see, October 7th, Vladimir Putin's birthday. Coincidence? Nikki Haley thinks not.
0: Remember when I told you Putin hit rock bottom? Hamas invaded Israel and did all that brutality on October 7th. October 7th is Putin's birthday.
1: <gasps>
0: Who's the happiest person in the world right now? Putin. Why? Because the U.S. and the West took all their eyes off of Ukraine, and what we do? Started looking at Israel. Did Putin call Netanyahu? Nope, not for 10 days. You know who he did call? Hamas. They came the next day and they held hands and said they were friends. We now know the Russian intelligence is what helped Hamas know how to get through that barrier. See the connection. If we supported Ukraine and supported Israel, that's only 5% of our defense budget.
1: Oh, very interesting here, Nikki Haley and again folks, we are here on a mythbuster Thursday so first of all, what the heck did she get right? I think this is going to be important. I want to start there. she got it right that there are oftentimes misdirections right she pointed that uh she pointed out that uh well it's good for Putin because shiny object of October seventh Israel 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 less on Ukraine means easier ability for Russia to fight Ukraine, right? To win more territory over there. Okay, I understand the misdirection and shiny objects that enemy enemies try to throw into the path of various foes all the time, right? But was Hamas's attack on October 7th a misdirection? Good question. I don't honestly know that I can definitively say yes or no. Most of the evidence would be suggestive of that's not the case at all, that this was misdirection. This was very simply Hamas using time, place, and manner to do an attack because they wanted to, because they finally had the ability, the backing, everything else that you wanted to know about making an an attack possible. They waited, they abided their time, they did all of those things. Is it coincidental that October 7th is Putin's birthday and that this attack happened? Absolutely. The the linkage there is disgusting for me. And this is part of the myth of, of all of this. Here's the reality that when we talk about Nikki Haley and the link between Putin and Hamas is you have to understand what Putin is attempting to do in the Middle East. And Nikki Haley doesn't get it, not at all. What I do know is that it didn't do much to change the thoughts on what is actually happening in Ukraine And against Putin here in the United States of America, that attack, October 7th, did it change anybody's thought, period, whether you wanted to say, I still support making sure that we give the money to Ukraine to defend themselves, blah, 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 or you say, hang on, hold up, wait a minute, we've given them plenty of monetary support, plenty of ammunition support, drones, um, rockets, whatever you want to say, okay? We've given them enough military aid and monetary support to be able to fight for themselves. And we need to stop. We should never be physically involved in this to begin with, whether you you believe the Nikki Haley side of things or hell no, not another dime. No matter what, here's the simple question. Did anything change on the Ukraine front by or vis-a-vis the October 7th Hamas attack. No, not here in America, and certainly not in Putin's eyes. Nothing, and I mean nothing, changed about that. Now, let's examine the theory here. What does Putin gain from the theory that Nikki Haley has put out there, that it's all about misdirection, and that Putin is now closer to Hamas, and he's not an ally of Israel. You are correct that he is not an ally of Israel. He never has been, and, and this is why. It's because, well, it's because of two things. From a theological standpoint, Russia is very anti-Jewish, has been for over a century, if not almost two centuries. They have a long history of anti-Semitism. And that's not just the Soviet Union. That was Tsarist Russia, and it is today. Anything outside of the Russian Orthodox Church is no boy no to Vladimir Putin, to all of the other people that are around him. That's part of the parcel of this. But what if we're talking about this theory of Hamas and, you know, we're linking together with Putin here, what does Putin gain from it? Well, what we have to understand is that this is actually likely to be much more of a marriage of convenience, a marriage of ideological um, marriage, if you will, ideology mattering most birds of the same feather flocking together much as the answer to why in the hell are we seeing what we see from the far left here in america they much have they have much much more in common with putin hamas and others than they do with those on the other side of the october 7th debate if you will but in the case of putin and hamas why would he side with them well it, it it has two parts to it from a international politics standpoint let alone a theological standpoint the anti-jewish part of this is probably the third rail if you will the first two rails are this what has this really been about from a proxy war standpoint for the united states versus or the West versus Putin. We have talked about this. National economics versus international economics. World order versus nationalism. Not from a perspective of America first biatches. No, no, no. National economics versus international economics. That's really the proxy war. But let me ask you this, could we further that to say this is about nationalism versus internationalism? Absolutely, because what are the the birds that flock together of Putin and Hamas? It is support for a national state that goes against the internationalism of the West, which Israel is a part of. Hamas' stated goal is what? A Palestinian nation state and the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel, right? It's not just, just the destruction. It is then the creation of a Palestinian nation state that has never actually physically existed in the entire history of the world. So Putin and Hamas are the birds of a feather that flock together from a nationalistic standpoint. Again, specifically, that Palestinian nation-state, which can serve as what for Putin? A buffer against the internationalism of the West, whether that's the European Union, America, so forth and so on. When we take a look at what you know, helps coalesce Iran, the access, if you will, today, of Iran and China and India and Russia, that grouping, what is the thing that holds them together? It is their belief that national economics, not international economics, is what will win the day. There must be a strong national economic standpoint they believe in the strength of the the ruble or the or the rupee or whatever right the renminbi the currency in china they believe in the currency of india they they don't believe in the internationalization of this they believe in strong national economics because it is to the advantage they know that they would get run over from that international standpoint Strong national economic belief versus international economic belief is also part and parcel of Hamas. If they, it, they would be a very small pinprick, but if they are aligned with Russia, China, Iran, India, they have greater economic, national economic power than they would otherwise. So Putin gets an ally. In that region, that serves three purposes. It serves the purpose of the national economics. It serves the purpose of nationalism versus internationalism. And then it serves the final purpose of of being anti-Jewish. That's the reality that is at play here. But the myth is that you have to fight in Ukraine and defeat Somehow, Putin there, or this gets worse. Somehow, we're supposed to believe that Putin is the reason for Hamas? No, 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 no. That is an absolute marriage of convenience for them. That's the reality here. It's a mutually beneficial, convenient relationship. It is a coalition, not a fellowship. And it's a coalition around two key points, nationalism and anti-Jewishism. So that's where it exists. And I hope that you can understand that. But to couple that to say that October 7th happened because of Vladimir Putin and it being his birthday and that was just a great gift to Vladimir Putin. No, it wasn't. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. It has absolutely nothing to do with marrying Ukraine and Hamas together. No, no, they are and should be dealt with separately. To put them together creates an even greater issue. For America. But for Nikki Haley and her neocon group, it's all about making sure that that money can get linked together so that they can benefit from it. That is exactly what is going on. So I'm going to bust the myth that October 7th, folks, had anything to do with Vladimir Putin's birthday gift. That is some weak stuff. Get that out of here. Now, we also have a second Nikki Haley take that we've got to look at here. And this is uh, Nikki Haley talking about immigration. Nikki Haley talking about criminals coming over the border. But let's
0: keep in mind, these people that are wanting to come here, they want to come for a better life, too. They have kids, too. They have a heart, too. They So we don't need to be disrespectful. We don't need to talk about them as criminals. They're not. They're families that want a better life, and they're desperate to get here.
1: They're families desperate to get here. Um. I, I really struggle with not blowing my top on this one. Other than to say this. She's right. There are families that are desperate to get here. There are families that do want a better life. But they are the vast, vast, vast minority of people coming into this country you can pick video after video and I struggled to which ones do I pick which ones do I want to pick but you can pick and go on Twitter go on X I should say you can go on Facebook you can go elsewhere and find video after video after video of journalist after journalist after journalist after, journalist after politician after politician after activist after activist, after activist. Going to the border, and where are the women and children? I will tell you this. Of the over 25,000, closer to probably 27,000 now, um, so-called migrants here in Chicago, less than 10% of them are families. And I know this very intimately because less than 200 yards away from my building, where I live, is a shelter for those people, the families. That's right. All of the families. It is the migrant shelter for families here in Chicago. And what I get to witness every day are families, literally mom, dad, son, daughter, daughter, sons, begging on the streets, out in front of grocery stores and gas stations and da-da-da-da-da-da. What I get to witness is the people who do actually want to be here for a better life, struggling because of how our government sets up the system of asylum and and immigration more broadly if these are the people that wanted to play by the rules. But they actually are not people who want to play by the rules because there are rules on how you do asylum, on how you seek an immigration status that's legal. And those rules are very simple. Go to a port of entry, declare your asylum, and sit there until it's adjudicated. Now, you can talk about all of the problems that exist because they do within that system. For instance, a great example of this is, hey, here in Chicago, because we have what we have on the ground here, right? Because it exists in Texas and elsewhere in this country. One of the biggest holes in the immigration system is this. If you were mom and dad and you wanted to work to get away from a migrant shelter, to get away from assistance and da 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 because let me tell you, it's not exactly a bee's knees of a scenario if you're catching my drift as to what's going on there. But if you wanted to do something to actually do that betterment of your life, the federal government says, ah, hell no. (laughs)
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor.
1: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. You can't get a job for five months at a bare minimum. It, in most cases, is nine to ten, maybe as much as a year. for those people going through these shelters and going through the program and blah, 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 blah. Instead, we could be having them paying taxes. We could be having them contributing to the local economy, to the local um, tax base, to all of those things, right? Instead, we could. Dealing with the reality that is in front of us. As we also then do something about shutting the border down and shutting the access and turning the spigot off. Then let's deal with the people that are. I'm not saying you reward them with citizenship or anything else, but what I am saying is having them suck off the teat of taxpayer money and the government isn't an answer either. Shouldn't we allow those people because we created this situation Because we, as a federal government, as uh, states and cities have decided to look the other way by and large, this is a we problem. So how do we solve it? As it would suggest that having people be productive members of our society and being contributors is a much better scenario than not. This isn't like... 15, 20 years ago, when we had the debate over do we just allow them a pathway to citizenship? I'm not talking about that. I am in no way talking about that. I, what I am talking about is making them self sustaining people that they can provide for themselves so that we don't have shelters, so that we don't have crime ridden um, hotels and former churches and this, that, and everything in between. That's what I'm suggesting. Let's create a position that will allow them some dignity to suggest that these are not human beings worthwhile of dignity. That's the point that I think Nikki Haley gets right is that they are worth dignity and a modicum of humanization. At the same time, those people, the families, the fathers, the mothers, and all of that represent less than 10%. Less than ten percent, at best. Most estimates are less than five percent of the migrants that continue to stream across the border. There's a video that surfaced from I think it's Real America's Voice, um, just recently, that went down, and they found over one hundred migrants being housed by NGOs in right over the border in Arizona being, uh, they're out there with bonfires and tents and they're provided with all sorts of different access by NGOs, right? And almost all of them from Egypt. All of them in their late teens, early 20s. None of them married, no kids in sight, no women in sight. That, my friends, is what we're dealing with. And what is the incentive for that single male population to come here to America? What is it? A better life, providing for family, blah, 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 blah. No, no, that's a really good question to ask. But the reality is that they are criminals, that these individuals are breaking the law, not in a... Uh, way in which true asylum is meant to be done. The suggestion that we're just supposed to not call them what they are, to not recognize the activity that brought them here in the first place as criminal is insane. The reality is that these people are criminals. And I'm sorry, For those individuals, we also should deal with their criminal activity. They're not claiming legal asylum in a legal way. I would have much more sympathy if they did do it in a legal way. Instead, they jump the border, they go over the river, they do this, they do that. Nary going to a port of actual entry and claiming the asylum that they seek. They are misled by leftist activists acting as NGOs and representatives of the government and being misled. So maybe I have some sympathy from that perspective, right? They're being misled by people here in America, Okay, so then let's deal with the criminals that are misleading them and, and telling them that they can just cross the border and they'll take care of an asylum claim for them. At the same time, it is also not our responsibility, hear me out on this, it is not, not ever ignorance of the law as a defense from breaking the law. Well, I don't know I was I didn't know that the legal limit was this. It's kind of your responsibility to to do that. It is kind of you're no, you if you're actually seeking out legal ways to do these things, find the legal way to do it instead of doing it and then asking for forgiveness later. Turns out America can be a very welcoming place. I'm not in the nativist camp in any way shape, or form by the way i i've I literally spent an entire episode deriding the nativist tendency of America first that all foreigners bad blah, foreign immigration bad Turn it all in no I'm firmly in the camp that I believe that immigration should be based off of the economic needs, wants, and empowerment of the best of America and the best of our society. Let's go ahead and attract the best and brightest and bring them here. Let's go ahead and compete, not in terms of, well, you can make this product for 15 cents in China versus, you know, $25 an hour over here. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let's go ahead and compete. Let's get to being the best and brightest, the most innovative, the most ingenuity, right? Driven society. Let's go ahead and get there. Right now, no, that's not what we are in any way, shape, or form. Let's go ahead and get a merit-based economic immigration system. Let's make barrier to entry to making our society better less difficult than more difficult for those who want to be part of the American dream, the American business society, right? Let's go ahead and do that. That's where I am. But to recognize a broken immigration system and then not fix it and not deal with the realities that exist in the ground is also bad. But Nikki Haley and your suggestion that we can't call these people criminals? No, man. Nah. Nah, brah. Nah, sis. That's the reality. These people are breaking the law on purpose. They're flouting it because they know they can because they have been told they can, because there are large national and international money interests in bringing these people here. I don't understand why. I don't get it. I don't know the details of it all. But it is a coordinated, purposeful effort to do what? I am not sure. I don't like the replacement theory BS, other than to say that these are largely what? People coming from socialist, left-wing societies, lest you forget about Egypt's politics, lest you forget about Central American politics and, and Latin American politics more broadly and its leftist bent, other than Malai in um, Argentina, or Malay, I should say, in Argentina. Lest you forget that these people come from largely left-leaning groups, Wonder if ideology has a lot to do with it from a political standpoint. Again, I'm not sure because I'm not there. I can't do all that investigative work myself. But it sure is funny that when we take a look at where these people are coming from, they're coming from vastly left-wing societies claiming asylum and then never showing up. Right? We could talk all about all of those things all you want and how do you deal with it. I don't know how you round up and deal with literally two, three million people. I don't know how you do that other than you turn the spigot off and say, no more, change how we do our immigration system and then focus in on those who don't fit in to the current immigration system. Weird how that works. All right, that having been said, folks, I think let's turn our uh, focus to college football. That's right. What do we make of cheaters winning in college football? What do we make of that? I think that's a really, really good question because as we look at the college football playoff championship, the national championship game coming up this next Monday, between the University of Michigan cheaters and best, I mean, leaders and best, versus the future Big Ten member, the University of Washington Huskies. So, as I said, we've got an all Big Ten college football final coming your way, and on Monday, I'll probably give a a breakdown and a preview and prediction. But with Michigan being there, the allegations against Connor Stallions and more broadly, Uh, Michigan when it comes to in-person advanced scouting of opponents. There's been a lot of discussion about cheating. There's been a lot of discussion about should you be rooting for or against Michigan and the sanctity of college football, its integrity is under attack. I'm going to say this. There are, I'm kind of right at the fork in the road. And what do I mean by this? I sit right there in the middle. Because what integrity? Are you talking about the integrity of the game in terms of what's played on the field? Or are you talking about it off the field? Because what's being alleged to have happened by Michigan, probably a lot of schools don't do. In fact, I would argue probably none of them are doing exactly what Michigan is alleged to have done. You know, buying tickets and um, stealing signs and advanced scouting of that nature, uh, or let alone getting on-field passes to uh, future opponents' games at other schools. But I will tell you this, there are many, many, many other ways in which people are advanced scouting and doing things. The rub with the Michigan thing is that it is very much a letter in spirit of the law violation when it comes to not law, but NCAA bylaws. OK, very much a cut and dry in my book, clear violation of that. But what's the spirit and letter of the law when it comes to other teams sharing film and doing this, that, and everything in between? I don't know. But here's where I come down. Number one, watching Connor Stallions sit in the stands at the Rose Bowl tells me that he's just a fanboy idiot first and foremost. And he should not have been at the Rose Bowl on January 1, whether he bought a ticket or not. It's a terrible look for Michigan. You have to wonder how he got the ticket and, and how much Michigan knew about that. And I'm not suggesting that there was anything that was going on in the game, okay? I don't think that. What I think is that when you've got this allegation that is out there, I don't think you can realistically put him anywhere near your program you have to be better than that you have to say yeah you can sit there and say yeah but we're we don't communicate with him we have no communication blah 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 all right well how did he end up at your football game near the sidelines by the way just just randomly happened to buy a ticket just just random booster gave him a ticket number two on my list is Just as I've talked about the myth that the left has created about yesterday on the program about the noble native, I find one of the biggest myths in modern American society is the myth that the media, that the athletic departments have, and the NCAA have created about some sort of purity of college, interscholastic, intercollegiate athletics that this is pure competition and amateurism and blah, 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 right? We, we're sold tradition, excellence, scholarship. Those are all points that we've been sold on, at least since I was a little kid, right? We've been told that college co- what separates college from professional athletics is a more pure attachment to the universities the games the the days gone by and the days that could be and, and everything else in between right it is a representative of the university and there's much deeper emotional physical attachment to that than there is to professional sports with i would argue the exception of my green bay packers and maybe the dallas cowboys But I think the Green Bay Packers are really the only example of this in American professional sports. That there's a deep-rooted community, physical attachment to that team, to the franchise, right? College athletics are not franchises. They're there. They're not going away unless the university goes away. Right? But the realities of college football and college athletics more broadly, but I'm going to talk in the terms of college football here. Well, the reality of tradition, excellence, purity, um, all of that, they're vastly different than the myth that has been sold about that. Here is reality check number one for me, though. For those who, I love the purity of the game and and what Michigan is doing is hurting the purity of the game in in, in college athletics. On the field, yes it is. But you're attempting to uphold something that has never actually existed in reality. Cheating, in-game, out-of-game, scouting, paying players, all of it has existed time in memoriam in college athletics. From fielding ineligible players all the way back in the 1880s and 1890s to win games and become national champion to... The story of the little brown jug, the trophy game between Michigan and Minnesota. How did that happen? It happened because Fielding Yost didn't trust that Minnesota wasn't about to poison the water because back in the day it was on the home team to provide water at their, at, to both sides at the game, right? Fielding Yost brought his own little brown jugs of water to the sidelines so that Minnesota couldn't poison his team. Some of that's paranoia. Some of that's the reality of the existence of win at all costs that existed in the pure t- the pure past of college athletics. Do we even have to talk about the past of the 80s and the 90s and paying players under the table, booster money, scholarship fudging, grade this and da-da-da-da-da? No. I mean, I could go on and on forever hours on that subject alone the reality is that cheating in the game around the game outside of the game has been a thing since the start reality number two folks there's an absolutely easy way in which college football fbs whatever we want to talk about can get rid of some of the in-game cheating that is going on and the advanced scouting cheating, the things that Connor Stallions did. There's a really simple way. No longer having to signal in every single play. Communication, in-headset communication between coordinator and quarterback on the offense and coordinator and designated signal caller on the defense. Now you have to put in place ways in which that communication cannot be known to the other side. Absolutely. But we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry here, folks. And that's exactly what it has turned into. It is a cash cow for universities, for other funding of scholarships and this, that, and everything in between. If Let me be clear on this. If college football went away, bye-bye college athletics today. It won't exist. That rowing team, the gymnastics team, swimming and diving, equestrian, whatever you want to, bowling, whatever, ain't going to happen, no way, no how, without college football And it's multi-billions of dollars. The suggestion that they couldn't possibly invest in that technology is asinine. Asinine. You want to get rid of this idea of impropriety within the game and make it more about pure competition, right? About who's the better athlete, who's the better prepared, who's got the best Uh, game plan, this, that, and everything in between. And you want to eliminate the ability for the other side to know exactly what's being called, when it's being called, how it's being called. There's a very simple way of doing it. Use your mouth instead of signals. You can cover up your mouth. You can do all sorts of things, right? You can change verbiage, uh, game to game, um, whatever have you. But... You want to make it better? That's how you do it. Here's reality number three, by the way. College football has created its own mess with the crap BCS system that they came up with because, whoa, purity of the bowls. Let me, let me ask a question. Any of you watched the ReliQuest Bowl between LSU and Wisconsin? I know I did because I'm a Badger fan, Right. You could have fit everybody that wanted to attend that game into the lower bowl. It was a January 1st bowl game, the traditional New Year's bowl game. Nobody wanted to go to sunny Tampa Bay, Florida. The reality is the bowl season's lost all of its meaning, largely because there's like nine gajillion of them. And that has a lot to do with how the BCS system was set up in the first place. Now, we have a crap transfer system. That's very clear. We have a crap uh, system in which we live in a fantasy world of scholarship and amateurism while everybody around the game is raking in literally billions upon billions of dollars on the backs of players who, well, sure, they get scholarships and now they get NIL. Well, guess what? The NIL system is disgustingly bad. Tampering is absolutely rampant. College coaches are spending far more time on retention of players. In fact, here's a great example of this right down the road at Northwestern. Ryan Braun, or not Ryan Braun, uh, David Braun, the new head coach, has hired a GM. That's right, an actual GM, a general manager. Why? Because... He can't focus all of his time like he has to now on scholarship retention, player retention, numbers, um scouting for transfer students and blah 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 blah. That's literally what a college football head coach is, is their job is right now. It ain't teaching them how to play the game, doing all of the ins and outs. Now, It's not what these guys got into the game for. Um, It's worrying about which position gets X amount of dollars and everything in between. Here's the reality. The sport was never pure. It never will be pure. And that's actually okay. I'm not suggesting playing illegal players is great or, or doing things that are against the spirit of actual competition in the game are great. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am suggesting is that turning villain Michigan into some sort of, well, turning Michigan into some sort of a villain while ignoring all the rest of the villainous stuff that goes on in the sport. And trust me on this, spend any time, if you have a chance as a fan, to spend any time with any member of a coaching staff of your favorite university Right, your favorite college football program. In fact, I would suggest a really great example of this would be uh, spend a day, win a day with a coach. Your mind will be blown as to what actually is going on in college athletics and what they really are doing on a day-to-day basis. You would mind blown. There's no doubt that what has made college football, in my mind, the greatest sport to watch is the direct physical emotional memories and you know all of the things the pageantry the the community all of the things that exist and it's what makes the Green Bay Packers special from an NFL standpoint right is that this is authentic instead of made-up marketing gimmickry this is some. The, the, the existence, the very existence of the Green Bay Packers is because of community, because of what it is. And it's the truth of college athletics. But it can exist even if you know the realities of what exists in college football. But letting go of the myth of the purity of the game is okay too. Because while you're rooting against Michigan because they're the cheaters and the best, right, while you're rooting for them to lose because cheating should never be rewarded, do you know what Washington is doing off the field to tamper with and recruit other players from other rosters? Do you know what they're doing in an attempt to attract people for NIL money and everything else in between? Do you know it? Do you know that they're the pure versus the evil cheaters of Michigan? Do you know that they don't have advanced scouting knowledge of Michigan? No. That's the reality. You have to bust that myth in and of itself. Everybody is doing something that is likely breaking an NCAA bylaw, regulation, whatever you want to call it. Everybody is doing something. To gain an advantage, whether that's gaming a roster system or creating a pipeline from FCS to themselves or whatever have you. Everybody is doing something that you might not like when you peel the layers of the onion back. At the end of the day, what matters is, is this still a worthwhile sport to be watching? Can the NCAA fix it, or do we need a whole new system? My argument is we need a whole new system of governance, a whole new way of looking at major college football if we want to keep that community attachment, that attachment to universities at all. That's the reality at play here. And with that, folks, please be smart, be safe, be kind, make sure you eat all of your meals today, and as always, Matthew 547.